0: The word stuck means to remain in a static position, to fail to progress, to be unable to progress with a task or find the answer or solution to something. Hmm. Is America stuck? How many think we're stuck, spinning our wheels? Okay. Okay, to me and people like Richard Reeves, the author of our reading this morning, America is stuck. At the very least, we're at a crossroads right now and must decide about who we want to be. And doing nothing, saying nothing, staying silent and still for this particular question is indeed a vote for whatever comes our way. What we decide together in the next couple years about the American dream, not who will be president, will determine nothing less than the future of America and whether or not the American dream is a possibility, or if it's just that, a dream. Here are the questions we're going to explore today. Is America really stuck? If we're stuck, how stuck are we? And last but certainly not least, what can we do about being stuck? How do we get unstuck? Stuck's a great word to say, by the way. You can You feel it in your mouth. Say stuck. Say it with me. Stuck. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we address the question about whether or not America is stuck in Reed's reading. I believe America is stuck. America is in a static position, failing to or unable to make progress. The second equally important question is how stuck are we? And for those of you that aren't convinced that we're stuck, these statistics are eye-opening. They were for me. Think about social mobility. Americans born at the bottom rung of the social ladder are now less likely to rise to the top than those similarly born in most other nations, only half as likely as their Canadian counterparts. 7.5% of the people in the United States will rise to the top of the social ladder. That's good, but it's compared to 9% in the United Kingdom, 11.7% in Denmark, and 13.5%, almost double, in Canada. You've heard of the glass ceiling, right? The inability for certain groups to rise and be promoted and make more money. Let me introduce you to the glass floor. Boys born in 1948 to a high-earning father, someone in the top quarter of wage distribution, has a 33% chance of becoming a high-age, high-age, high-wage earner themselves. Those born in 1980 had a 44% chance, 44 to 33% chance of staying at the top. A glass floor prevents even the least talented offspring of the American affluent from falling lower in the economic ladder. So there's a glass floor for individuals. I think there's a glass floor for multinational corporations too. The American tax code is full of guarantees, tax breaks, and deductions to keep the glass floor intact. for companies and individuals. A dozen American companies, some of the largest, now use offshore accounts and subsidiaries cleverly and intentionally to avoid paying their share of U.S. taxes, all in accordance with the present U.S. tax code. Apple, for instance, per a recent 60 Minutes segment, has one million employees in China. Yeah, one million. One million mostly skilled tool and die makers, and reports roughly two-thirds of its income through foreign subsidiaries, therefore avoiding U.S. taxes on those earnings, all in accordance with the United States tax law. A dozen or so more of these largest companies have or are following suit with offshore accounts and earnings reports, again, all in accordance with the U.S. tax code. What about distribution of wealth? Total wealth before any government intervention, market inequality, is about the same in the U.S. as it is in Germany and France. However, America's wealth is much more unequal because American policy moves less money from the rich to the poor. As Rees points out, inequality is not fate or nature. Inequality is a choice. How about this? Seven out of ten black kids raised in middle-income homes will end up doing worse financially as adults. Black wealth is virtually non-existent in America. The net worth of the average black family in national economic terms is $11,000. The percentage of all businesses less than one year old, a key indicator of business dynamism, is down from 15% in the late 1970s to 8% today, almost half what it was. Labor productivity growth in the U.S. has averaged 1.6%, virtually nothing since 1973. The median full-time male wage in the U.S. was $50,000 in 2014, down from 53 in 1973 in equal dollars, Again, near zero growth. Half of those born on the bottom rung of the income ladder, the bottom fifth, will remain there as adults. Americans are also becoming adverse to change, which indicates a further resistance to risk-taking and or thinking bigger. One indicator of this resistance we just saw is the smaller number of businesses started. Another indicator is the number of people that move, The percentage of Americans moving every year is 12%, about half of what it was after World War II. Long distance moves, a move that includes crossing a state line, is also about half what it once was. So don't memorize those statistics. I can show you where I got them. You can look them up. But in short, you're getting the feeling, right? America's stuck. We're stuck pretty good We're stuck more in some spots than in others. you say it with me? Stuck. Stuck. So, how do we get unstuck? Reeves, the author of the article, thankfully doesn't leave us hanging. His answer to getting us unstuck lies in two things. First, more immigration. Second, a revival of state and local governments. Reeves' call for for more immigrants, of course, goes in the face of some daunting opposition. Debates on immigration reform have become intertwined with race and racism. More than four in ten white seniors say that a growing population of immigrants is a change for the worse. Half of all white boomers feel that immigration is a threat to American customs and values. It gets worse. In a just-released NBC News Esquire survey, 51% said that immigrants strengthen our country, and 46% say that immigrants are a burden on our country. But of the 51% that said immigrants strengthen our country, 73% were Hispanic. 63% were blacks. Only 43% of whites agreed to that statement. According to the same NBC Esquire poll, those who hold anti-immigration views are significantly more likely to say the American dream is dead. Significantly more likely to say the US was once but is no longer the most powerful country in the world. And twice as likely to say that white men are struggling to keep up in today's world. Some barriers with immigration. These feelings that so many Americans hold so tightly have nothing to do with logic or science, but there you have it. The immigration issue is a bit like the global warming debate. It's still raging, even though global warming has been proven over and over again by many different scientists in different countries, different eras, to be a fact. Consider these statistics on immigrants. Immigrants are now twice as likely to start a new business as a native-born American. Among children born to poor Chinese immigrants in Los Angeles an astonishing 70.70% complete a four-year college degree. Migrants within the US are moving from traditional big cities, New York, Los Angeles, to other towns and cities thus spreading their influence. On the immigration issue Reeves concludes entrepreneurial mobile aspirational. New Americans are true Americans. We need a lot more of them. But he also warns, where this immigration debate ends will tell us a great deal about the trajectory of the nation. An America that closes its doors is an America that has chosen to settle rather than grow, that has allowed security to trump dynamism. Reeve's second solution to getting America unstuck, along with embracing more immigrants, is a revival of city and state governments. He states cities are where the American dream, where the American dream will live or die. Consider these. America's hundred biggest metropolitan areas are home to 60 per, 67% of the nation's population and 75% of its economy powerful mayors in these cities have more room for maneuvering and making an impact than the average U.S. senator. Many of the big domestic policy challenges, education, family planning, housing, desegregation, job creation, transport, and training will be better answered at the sub-national level. Common Core education, for instance, is a federal program, but only nine out of every hundred dollars comes from the federal government. The rest comes locally. In case you are worried that the federal government will not play a part in our future, rest assured, there will still be plenty of problems for the federal government to fix, among them infrastructure and nuclear waste, but because they don't have the luxury of being stuck, mayors and governors are being forced to be, quote, entrepreneurs of a new politics, end quote. Reeves' words, just to survive. Reeves, a recently migrated Brit himself, concludes, it is possible for America to recover its earlier dynamism, but it won't be easy. The big question for Americans is, do you really want to recover? He goes on, the worst of all worlds threatens a European-class structure without European welfare systems to dull the pain. So, we're stuck. And we're stuck bad. While there are no shortage of ideas on how to get unstuck, there is still doubt, at least in my mind, about whether or not we can realize some or most or any of these good ideas out there. Among the barriers are term-limited politics, money, I don't have the time or the heart to get into Citizens United here today, and downright unadulterated anger and hatred among many, many Americans. The most recent issue of Esquire, I read Esquire, can you tell? The most recent issue of Esquire, where the NBC News poll results appear, featured a full-page cover picture of a frowning Donald Trump on a black background under the headline, Hater-in-Chief. I actually did the survey about hate and anger, and I just touched the surface. Something dark is happening in America, something much darker than presidential primary debates. So what do we do? I think there's a third element needed before any solution can be approached or maybe realized a precursor to any lasting solution a third, as we say in business, a third leg of the stool in this American recovery, in this upcoming American choice. That third element? Forgiveness. At least one form of forgiveness. Our problems in America aren't logical. They're not scientific. They're not financial. They aren't problems of scarcity. We're stuck because of fear, of emotion, of base, primal, and self-centered survival, and hoarding instincts. We need to shelve our emotions, shelve our blame, forget our past quarrels, to be able to get unstuck and move forward, and move forward for the common good. Can we do that at a national level? I'm not yet convinced or really optimistic. That American ideal of individualism creeps in through the back door and, unchecked, often crushes egalitarianism, equality, crushes many, if not most, chances we might have for some sort of national forgiveness so that we can move on. There seems to be no balanced reasoning. It's the logical flaw of thinking that you have to make one choice or the other. There aren't any. Individualism or equality. It's interesting here to note that in his original draft of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal and independent, a sentiment that remained American even though the last two words, and independent, were ultimately cut. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence was not only a declaration of national independence, it was also a declaration of a nation of independence. And of course, independence is often no good friend to forgiveness. Can we take the gloves off? Can we discard our individual selfishness for the common good? Is it conceivable that strong messages of hate will gain the presidential nomination, if not the presidency, of the United States? Can we stop the reign of politics of fear and limitation that have been holding us back for at least eight years now? I'll bite. I'm an optimist at heart. Let's assume we can for now. Let's say we can stop the fear and scarcity and hate, wave a magic wand of forgiveness over the land, and replace that fear with with what? And, And who will do the replacing? I can pretty much bet that it won't be a politician, And we can all hope it won't be some military regime or dictator or some other faction that plops us into a civil war of some sort to try to save our starkly different ideals in some last gasp, desperate effort. We've been there, done that once before. No, I think the change we need, the push we need to forgive one another, the impetus to move forward together is going to come from another unusual, unexpected source from an artist, from a poet. Abraham Lincoln purportedly said when he met Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, subtitled Life Among the Lowly. So, this is the little lady who started this great war. That quote as much as I love it, I better be honest. It was uh, not quoted until 1896, and of course Lincoln was dead for 30 years. Anyway, <laughs> it's still nice, still nice quote. <clears throat> Literature can change the world. I think the change we need, if we get it in time, will come from the artists among us. I don't have faith that any other system currently at our disposal will resolve our issues, or that people will wake up in time on their own, given conventional wisdom or norms to what is happening. Who was it that said, you do the same thing over and over and over again and expect different results? What do you get? Insanity. Insanity. And who was that? Einstein, right? Yeah. I see the teacher comes out. <clears throat> A professor, mentor of mine, Clint McCown, expressed similar ideas recently in his short story, Somewhere West of Truth or Consequences, just published in Crazy Horse Literary Magazine. The narrator, a man who traveled to a 1977 desert retreat as part of a cross-country motorcycle trip to find himself, is a poet, but he's a poet in residence for the North Carolina community college system. This narrator says, I was just a watered-down, sanitized version of the artist. I was too quiet, too lacking in outrage to be the genuine article. The real writerly tribe was rife with bombastic complainers and alarmists. Or at least that's what Plato thought. That's why he banned poets from his utopian republic. The last thing a perfect society needed was some boat-rocking, loudmouth lobbying for change. Plato abhorred poetry's ability to inflame the emotions and he considered poetry a corruptive influence that encouraged individualism rather than subservience to the state. You probably weren't told this in school, but in many ways Plato was a fascist jerk. <laughs> the narrator goes on. The southern writer Walter Piercy had a different take, likening writers to the canary in the coal mine. Writers were society's first line of defense, he believed, the first to respond when things began to turn toxic. It was a lousy job when you thought of it, considering that the canary typically died from the fumes, but at least the canary served a purpose. Perhaps today, this Sunday morning, we found our cause, our purpose. Gained a renewed sense of urgency, America is stuck. We need to get America unstuck. And forgiveness, not politics, not new ideas, not more funding, not more or fewer laws or regulations, is our first step, even before we welcome immigrants and revive local politics, like Reeves said we should. But forgiveness is a spiritual matter. Our politicians can't or won't address the issue. They're too busy getting elected or getting reelected. Most citizens aren't even aware of what the real issues are. Let alone how to address them, and are instead content to let someone else do their thinking and changing for them, kind of like the settlers in the Allegory of the Cave. Virginia Satir, a renowned family therapist, once famously said Most people prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. (laughs) Let me read it again because it's really good. Most people prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. Never have her words rung so true. They remind me, sadly, of what happens to the frog set in boiling water. If you put the frog in the water before the water gets too hot, heat the water up gradually enough, the frog would just sit there until he or she literally gets so hot they explode. If I'm right, that our way out of this mess is spiritual instead of political, artistic instead of financial. Implications of getting America unstuck is that the next campaign contribution check you might be writing should go not to Bernie Sanders or to Hillary Clinton or Martin O'Malley or, or whoever you choose, but you'd rather go to the fine arts college or university of your choice. <laughs> to the brave poets out there, alive or maybe not yet born, that raise a dissenting voice for forgiveness and progress and common good in a world of greed and anger or hate. Or, gee whiz, you could give that money to the Unitarian Universalist Church of your choice instead. Your money just might be that much better spent.